This is Andy Ho, host of the Continuing Education Series, a podcast produced for the members of the French Language Division of the American Translators Association, offering educational content about the craft of French to English and English to French translation and the division. Today we're joined by Susan Pickford, who is from the UK, but she's been living in France since the late 90s after earning a degree in French and German. She worked in publishing for a short while before beginning translation in 2001. I guess she saw the light using her publishing background as a springboard. She joined the Louvre translation team in the early aughts when they were setting up the museum's first big website and the rest is history. Susan also has a PhD in comparative literature and taught English at various universities before landing a tenured position in translation studies in 2007. And now, she runs the English unit at the University of Geneva, where I attended a semester, fabulous memories there, at the what is now called Faculté de Traduction et d'Interprétation. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. So you have a very interesting and varied background and career, and we're going to get to all of it, but let's start with the beginning. So first, you started working in publishing before parlaying that into a career in translation. So how exactly did you work that transition? How did you use your publishing world experience to leverage that into a second career? Um, well, to start off with, I mean, I, I have to say I was pretty low in the food chain when I was in publishing. Uh, I was in uh, Paris and I only worked in publishing for a year. But it was, uh, to be honest, it was an excellent grounding in um, sort of the, the whole publishing ecosystem, I would say, because I was pretty much the dog's body who did, you know, I did the photocopying and I went to the other departments and so on. Um, but it really gave me, gave me a, you know, an overview of the whole thing, how it hung together, where translation in particular fitted into it. I was working in a department where we produced translation, uh, translated books in house of illustrated books coffee table books, I guess you called them. Um, and so I sort of got a sense of the economy of it and how uh, how translation really slotted into that. Um, while I was there, I did a lot of editing, sort of language editing on the translations that came in. And I also uh, did a little bit of translation myself. Um, and I would say that was also super helpful because it was really broad. Uh, there were books on everything from, you know, rose varieties, uh, model trains, lighthouses, you know, it was a really good, broad grounding in how to write for a general audience. And it also made me think about, you know, who am I writing for? What do they need to know? Um, so I would say that was a really, really good place to start. Um, and the other thing that it taught me is that I'm really not cut out for a nine to five office job. Um, so that kind of uh, propelled me uh, into further study, uh, which is sort of my my other strand in life, uh, you know, working in, in academia. Um, so from there, I started, uh, I, I went back and did my PhD, and I funded my PhD largely by working in translation, starting out mostly for the same publisher in Paris, um, but also then, you know, it snowballed from there as I built up contacts and I worked a lot with a, a sort of informal network of people working in the same sort of sector in Paris at the time, yeah. So you said you learned where translation slots in into the publishing industry. Where does it slot in? That's a very good question. I mean, I think we tend to think, to think of translation as um, sort of an isolated phenomenon but actually it's you know it's really much very much a part of a chain of command 
where you have uh, exactly as in business translation or in other sectors, when we're looking at publishing translation, you have a commissioner, somebody who's, uh, you know, who's, who wants to buy the project. You have uh, people who are going to be editing your text. You then have buyers who you have to write for, etc. So you're never working in isolation. Uh, you know, even if you're doing literary translation, you're always working in a chain of command. And I think we sometimes forget that. And I think it's important to bear it in mind. Now, speaking of literary translation, you were also on the French Literary Translators Association board for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so I, I mean, as I was saying, we do think of translators, you know, people think that we work at home in a kind of ivory tower. Uh, but that's really not true in my experience. I mean, I've always worked in teams. It's part of the, I think, part of the arts sector as well. Is that's one of the characteristics that they're big projects, and uh, you're often working working to short deadlines. Uh, so I do work a lot in teams, um, and I've always had that sort of uh, ethos of advocacy and service for the profession because I've always thought that if you want to be take if if translation wants to be taken seriously as a profession it needs to foster that kind of collective shared ethos and values, which are sort of core, a core definition of what a profession is. Um, you know, we don't sign a Hippocratic oath, but, you know, we can work towards having a collective shared set of values. And that's really what I thought about when I was joining the, um, uh, the, the, the French Translation Association. Um, it's kind of the idea of a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, if we're all working together for better conditions, um, then it works for everybody. And I have to say, doing that, I've also had a lot of work through it. I've also passed a lot of work on from it. Um, so I think that collective, sort of seeing what we do in, a, in, in that collective perspective is, is super helpful all around. Yeah, it's so super important when the majority of our days is us in the four walls, you know, talking to mm -hmm. ourselves to really make it a point to get out there and connect. Absolutely, it's so important. Uh, you know, from from you know from a mental health perspective, fitness perspective, uh, connecting with others, the human side of it is so important. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Now, you have said that uh, the majority of your clients currently, or in the past even, have been museums and opera houses, various cultural institutions. So, I assume that was that decision was influenced by your early work on the Louvre project. Pretty much. Uh, I would say it's, uh, I kind of fell into it, but it really suited me as well. So I think it's, you know, kind of, uh, um, it's, you know, it's a good thing that I, 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 I came into this. Uh, from my perspective, um, I have always been interested in the arts. You know, I'm a keen museum goer. Um, so I can't say it was a deliberate decision to take, to make that my speciality. Um, but yeah, having worked on the Louvre project and having you know built up a network of people who were also working in similar areas, um, yes, it just it sort of fell naturally into place. And I have to say, it's super interesting, super varied. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work uh, in the sector, um, which is which is really uh, very varied and very interesting. So, in addition to museums and opera houses, uh, who are your clients, and what kind of projects do you do for them? Uh, well, at the minute, it's uh, really has been uh, museums. I have been heavily working in that sector. I mean, I do occasional things for record labels, operas, uh, a little bit of music on the side as well. But the vast majority of my work is for a sort of core set, I would say, of six or seven museums. 
that I have a good long-standing working relationship with. Uh, so, you know, big museums in Paris, which have a lot of work, obviously, because, you know, these are huge international uh, visitor attractions. Uh, also now, since I moved down to, uh, to live near Switzerland, I work a lot with Swiss museums as well. Um, so that's really the, you know, the bulk of where my work is now is in museums and the sort of thing I do, I do wall panels for exhibitions, temporary exhibitions. I do a lot of catalogues, uh, a lot of website content, uh, because obviously they have, you know, exhibitions that are constantly changing. They have to bring new visitors in with new attractions, new content. Uh, so there's kind of an ongoing uh, sort of rolling stock of work that needs to be done plus you know the the sort of bread and butter work of um, updating websites in terms of you know covid restrictions and uh you know updated accessibility statements and things like that um so i tend to work less on those but there is there is some of that as well more, more of the some more of the sort of pragmatic side of uh, visitor visitor attraction work so you said there is a certain chain of command in publishing. Is that mm -hmm. the same also in museum work? Pretty much, yes. Uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the big museums I work for have their own publishing branches or you know their own publishing departments. Um, I tend not to deal with those so much these days. I would pretty much be talking to one person who is often a curator at the museum, uh, particularly if it's a smaller museum. Uh, a lot of the bigger ones, as I say, you know, the Louvre will have its own publishing branch and then I'll be dealing with them. Um, but since I stopped working in publishing, I have much less contact with that broader chain of command. Uh, it's really now a sort of me uh, talking to the, uh, to the to my contact at the at the museum. So um, how does how do museum clients or cultural institution clients differ from more commercial clients? would you say? Uh, well, I'd say there's a question of status in that they tend to be non-profits uh, or, you know, state run. So I have to say in the French context, that means there can be a lot of um, admin involved in terms of billing, things like that. Um, there are some real specific uh, aspects to museum translation. So things like uh, space constraints when you're working on wall panels, uh, you know that you've only got so many characters that you can play with. Um, and you also have to be aware of the fact that um, you're looking, you're writing for often in a lot of cases, a very international audience. So you know that Chinese visitors, for instance, will be mediating or will be accessing the art through the English. So you have to bear that in mind and how you write and how you gloss things. And, you know, you have to explain who various historical characters are that are in paintings uh, for an international audience, but then keeping that within the space constraint that you have on the wall panel, uh, that sort of thing. So that can be quite a challenge. Um, I would say that another uh, thing that is specific about the work is it can be highly technical when you're talking, for instance, about uh, you know pottery glazing techniques, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but it could also be very, very creative when, um, you know, I had one project a couple of years ago, for instance, where it was an imaginary index of objects that you might find in a surrealist painting, and then it needed to be, complete, oh no, there was lots of wordplay, and the whole thing needed completely rewriting. So you have to be sort of a master of a lot of skills. I mean, the things I've worked on in the last couple of years, um, philosophy of architecture, 
uh, for a journal that I work with regularly, um, 18th century furniture, uh, 19th century photographer photography. I did an exhibition on wampum beads uh, for uh, a place in Paris last year. Um, so you have to be really on top of sort of, A, you have to be on top of trends in the art world. I think that's important, contemporary art in particular. But you also have to be super skilled at getting very good at things you don't know much about very quickly. I mean, before I did the wampum beads exhibition, I could hardly have told you what they were. But, you know, you that's one of the skill sets is really developing expertise uh, very quickly with that sort of background knowledge of sort of the fundamentals of art and art vocabulary. Um, I think that's that's one of the most important things. Um, I would say that uh, one thing that is specific about it as well is that I never use any cat tools. Um, I think it's one of the rare sectors where they're not necessarily very, very useful because kind of by definition, the re repeatability of the kind of texts I work on is very, very low. So there's not a lot of point in investing in cat tools at the minute for me. So I do it all old school by hand. But what about glossaries? Do you maintain glossaries? No? I, I personally don't because I kind of started my career before they were a thing, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So I've honestly never quite got into it. Um, I, I, I maintain them sort of informally, but I don't have any tools that do that for me. It's all in your head, huh? All in my head, yeah. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, the few <laughs> times, uh, you know, in my younger days, I accepted some projects translating some artwork and because uh, I thought it would be easy. I thought it would be soft. I think a lot of people do. And I was shocked by how technical it is. Mm -hmm. And I find, or for me at the time, at least, it was even harder to find those technical terms than it would be for a piece of machinery. Say. Sure, sure. Yeah. You so, have to be good. I mean, now, you know, when I started out, Google was barely a thing. Uh, so you did spend a lot of time doing research. Um, now, you know, 20 years down the line, I'm a lot, you know, it's a lot easier than it was uh, looking, looking up terms. You know, there are good bilingual dictionaries out there that you can access. Um, but by and large, when you've, you know, when you've been working in the sector for a long time, you do know a lot of the background uh, stuff. And I also know now to refuse projects where I'm not going to be comfortable with the level of technical language. Uh, so, for example, there are some architecture type projects that I would say no to these days because I just know that I'm going to spend a lot of time looking up terms for 12th century church architecture and I am quite happy to pass that kind of text on to other colleagues who are very good at it these days. No matter how long I'm in translation I'm still constantly shocked by the obscurity of the texts that we can receive. Uh-huh. But it's part of what makes it fun. It is absolutely. I mean, the sheer variety of, uh, you know, jumping from subject to subject and, you know, being an instant expert in things, I, I, I find that instant, you know, it, it's constantly super gratifying for me. Yeah. So you talked about your, uh, the other half of your life. Mm -hmm. You also work at the University de Genève yep. in Geneva. So what mm -hmm. exactly are your responsibilities there? Okay, so I've been in Geneva now. This is my third year just starting. Uh, I run the English unit, which uh, runs the MA in translation from French and Spanish to English uh, in legal and financial and economic translation. Uh, Geneva actually has one of the oldest translation schools in the world. 
uh, started back in the uh, immediate post-war period, and it's now become a full faculty. So I am head of a team of 10 translators who teach. Um, I'm you know, the full-time full person at the university, and then my colleagues are all people who are working at you know, the various international institutions that we have in Geneva. So uh, people who are working at the World Health Organization, at the Red Cross, at the uh, International Labor Organization and so on, who will come in and teach in their special, uh, in their, in their, uh, in their special area of expertise. Um, so that again is, is super gratifying. And because I'm an academic as well, I do uh, some research uh, as well uh, alongside that, uh, and I teach as well. I teach undergraduates uh, translation, yep. So what courses do you teach? Uh, at the moment I'm teaching uh, TEM, which is French to English translation for undergraduates. Uh, and then uh, I also teach um, translation revision and uh, translation criticism uh, later in the year. And what is your area of research? So my research focuses on uh, translation sociology, uh, particularly uh, translator sociology. So I'm super interested in, because I've always been at the crossroads of sort of practice and research, I'm super interested in translator careers, how people, you know, who gets to translate what, at what kind of content and in what conditions and particularly what sort of economic conditions so I'm super interested in issues of workflow, timing, how people get to choose the, you know, do people get to choose the projects they work on? At what stage in your career can you afford to say yes or no to things? Uh, you know, can you work in, in, in literary translation particularly? Can you, can you work in it full time? Can you describe yourself as a professional literary translator if it's not your main source of income? Uh, so sort of theorizing around those issues is what I'm working on at the minute. That is so interesting. Do mm -hmm. you also look at the geographical level? Because just off the bat, I mean, for instance, Europe and America, the landscapes are so different. Absolutely. Uh, I work mostly in the European context, be, to be honest, because, you know, I'm, that's where I am. Um, but I know the landscapes are very different. I mean, even just things like, the, you know, aspects that are very little discussed, but things like the tax setup, healthcare setup which means that uh, you know, in Europe, you might be able to afford to start a career in a different way than you would in the States. Uh, and that's not, you know, not even getting into other parts of the world where I really don't have the knowledge to, to talk about them. But you know, these are interesting and important questions that I think we need to spend more time talking about in the profession. Absolutely. Um, well, okay, final question that I ask everybody, uh, what, what do you want to leave the listeners with? What would you like them to know? <laughs> okay, well, I do have one thing that is quite exciting uh, in my, so the most exciting thing that's happened to me in my translation career so far is that last year I translated a novel for the first time, a full-length novel uh, by a Belgian author called Barbara Abel, and the book is called Mother's Instinct. And it's coming out soon as a film, a Hollywood film starring Jessica Chastain and Anne Hathaway. Uh, it's kind of been a little bit delayed by the strikes, but, you know, you've got to support that. Uh, so it's uh, out soon. Uh, look out for that. And I'm super stoked that that's happened. Oh, my gosh, that's so exciting. I know. I hope I get invited to the premiere. I mean, I'm looking out for an invitation. I forget what uh, movie I was watching recently. Oh, it was A Man Called... 
Otto, that's the English uh, American title, A Man Called Ove is the mm-hmm. Swedish title. Um, and I watched the trailer, I read the English version and then I watched the trailer and I recognized exact dialogue from the English translation of the book wow. spoken by Tom Hanks. <laughs> so do you know if, you know, Jessica Chastain and Anne Hathaway are speaking words that you wrote? I suspect not. They've got someone else. They got someone to do the screenplay and then they bought the rights to the French book uh, because it's actually a remake of a Belgian film from a few years ago. So my I have to say my involvement in the film is kind of peripheral. So, you know, that invitation may not happen, but still it's it's it might have taken it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to gate crash. If not, I'm going to I'm going to take the train to Paris and gate crash. All right, well, that's very exciting. So everybody check out that book. What's the uh, French title of the book? Uh, Derrière la haine. Yeah. All right. Yeah, everybody complete change of title. Translated mm-hmm. by Susan Pickford, check it out. Absolutely, it's out there. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you so much, Susan, for joining us today and telling us all about your very interesting career. Well, thank you, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. This concludes our episode for today. You can subscribe to the Continuing Education Series podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for Continuing Education Series. You can contact the FLD at divisionfld at atanet.org, visit our website at www.ata-divisions.org FLD, or get in touch with us on social media. This is Andy Ho signing off. Thanks for listening and à bientôt.